Welcome to the podcast, Working with Children and Young People. It's hosted by me, Dr. Kay Calver. In each episode, I will be joined by a special guest to explore different career options relating to working with children and young people. We will also explore current issues facing the sector and offer top tips for achieving your desired career. So for the second episode in this series, I would like to introduce my very special guest, Louise. Hello, Louise. Um, Hi. Thank you very much for agreeing to talk with me today. Um, And so um, would you be able to tell us what your job title is? Yeah, so um, my job title now is a targeted support family worker, um, which is is part of the early help system that's rolled out across local governments. Um, But we're not early help per se, on its own, targeted support is one small part of the whole um, of early help, really. So, okay. yeah, targeted supports family worker. Other people or students might have heard um, the same role as an early help worker. Okay. As the role is changing in local government and national government. So, so if you were looking at job types, it might be an early help worker, yeah. family support worker, yeah, targeted family support worker yeah any other phrases that might be there with changing government and sometimes sometimes it's um targeted support family practitioner so if students were searching for roles they might put that in the word practitioner as well okay yeah so yeah (laughs) but it's all the same thing so how would you describe that job so the title definitely you know suggests that you work with families yeah. Uh, and you're offering some kind of help and support. So how would you describe your job? Is there a, a kind of a typical roles and responsibilities or a kind of typical day or week for you or is it quite varied? Okay, so it is varied. It certainly is very varied. Um, so to understand where it sits within the government systems might be useful. So the targeted support comes under MASH, the multi-agency safeguarding hub. So you could, in effect, be working with families that are stepped down from social care, or you could be working with families that you might have to step up to social care once you've done your piece of work with them. So this is, you know, I'm talking complex needs here. Yeah. Um, Or we could be working with parents that have gone to the hub themselves and said, help, I, you know, I need help. So it, it, it does often bring a very wide range, um, I'll say, of a wide range of challenges and difficulties. I wouldn't like to call them problems because I always think things can be sorted out with the right help. Um, so to put a perspective, the type of families that we would work with, it could be families with um, children, young people, or a mixture of children and young people. We could have families with children who have undiagnosed health needs, mental and physical health needs, and it's our job to unpick what they need and where to signpost to. We could be working with families where parents have health needs as well. Um, Families with drug and alcohol addictions. Families with histories of domestic abuse or ongoing current domestic abuse. Um, families where parents or siblings might be in prison, um, children 
big one is children who have experienced some types of traumas and they're still affecting them today. And we're trying to get to the bottom of what their needs are. Um, you know, I work with children who have been sexually abused, um, who have experienced the domestic abuse or homelessness or war. I have worked with a lot of children who have been subject to war. Um, children who, or young people who are increasingly exposed to criminal, child criminal exploitation, child sexual exploitation. So you can see that's quite broad. You know, I work with families where parents have been in the military. So it's really, really broad. And I would say, you asked about the role, I would say we're almost like general practitioners in the sense that you need to have quite broad experiences to step into the role, but you need to be prepared to be expanding those. Yeah, because you have to know a little bit about lots of things rather than a lot about one thing. Does that yeah. makes sense? Yeah. <laughs> that list that you said that, that you just talked about, you know, that covers a huge range of you know, needs that, you know, might be there for the child, the young person or the family. And each of those experiences will be unique and different for each family that you also encounter. So there's no one size kind of fits all solution or kind of package in place. So to kind of break it, break it down a little bit then. So say a family might have actually approached, when you say the hub, can you maybe explain what, what the hub is? So families can, if, if, if a, some families don't even know about it but families when they get to here that they can approach the early help hub they can go to their local authority um and and contact them through their early help support system or the early help hub and and you know basically say look i'm really struggling with a b and c might be child set favorite example child's behavior really struggling with my child's behavior my child doesn't want to go to school they become the school refuser I really need someone to come and help me. Can you do an early help assessment? So then someone at the hub would provide the early help assessment or that parent might go to their child's school and say to school, oh, you know, I'm having real difficulties at home with him or her. And school might typically say, oh, we don't notice those problems in school, but we can do an early help assessment for you. So there's, there's quite a few people who can do an early help assessment. So if they go to the hub, it could be that they ask a family worker to do an early help assessment. It could be someone at the hub does it directly. Or it could be the parent goes to school and the school do it. could be that the health visitor does it. So lots of professionals who support families in other ways are able to complete an early help assessment. Um, so they used to be called a common assessment framework, but it's early help assessment now. Um, and sometimes as a family worker, sometimes that's all I do. You know, I get people who've gone to the hub. I get told to go out and do an early help assessment. So I do that assessment with them and then it gets triaged and it will go then to a family worker, sometimes comes back to me to actually do the pieces of work with them. Um, if it comes from the hub and someone at the hub or a GP or, or, you know, someone at school has done the early help assessment, it just comes onto our um, task tray, if you like, uh, um, at the, the the local council, and it just gets allocated out, and then you go and do the pieces of prescribed work that the assessment has identified. Okay, so yeah. like actually, a range of professionals need to be aware of this early health assessment. Then, yes. because 
whether you are a family support worker or you know a teacher and or you know in lots of other areas to do with children and young people you might identify a family in need and and need to do that kind of assessment process so once that assessment's been conducted and it comes to you when you're talking about kind of like a package of support can you kind of talk us through what kind of things you might then do once you meet and talk with that family yeah so quite often the assessment will have identified the sort of the emerging needs and they're often things like um to do a parenting program with parents so sometimes parents need strategies it might be to do one-to-one work on um like dealing with challenging behavior so those types of things uh routines and boundaries work and so some parents just need help you know they've kind of lost their way and they don't know how to get a routine or boundary in at home um Sometimes it's about, um, you know, we, we do signposts because, as I said, we're like general practitioners. So we can do a lot of the parenting stuff and the, a lot of the challenging behaviour stuff one-to-one. But obviously what we can't do is if that if that child has anxiety needs, we're not mental health professionals, so we have to know where the boundaries lie. So I'll often do a piece of work around anxiety to help parents understand what anxiety is in children and how their anxieties can transfer onto their children. And I might do a few sessions with the child one-to-one about how he or she can manage their anxiety. But ultimately, I can't do anything therapeutic because I'm not that mental health practitioner. Yes. What I'll then do is I will either signpost or I will put a referral in to like local um, sort of child and adult mental health services. And so while that referral is kind of underway and in the hands of that service, I do my little bits as a stopgap. I'm sort of plugging the gap, really. Yeah. I think that must be increasingly more and more important because the waiting list for some of the services for family. I've got families that are waiting like... um, you know, up to a year just to have their initial consultation. And so sometimes, although, you know, I'm not supposed to be with my families that long, sometimes I am with some of them, with some of them for a year because I'm trying to, I'm almost like holding them, if you know what I mean, holding them, being that support person for them in that time. And so it's, as I said, in that, in that period of time, I could be doing the parenting program or the anxiety work or signposting to other things, but I try and get lots of things ironed out. There's never just one problem or challenge for a family. Yeah. No, it's, I almost work on one little task at a time. So, um, I've got a family now that I'll give an example. And I, of course, I'm not saying any names, so this is completely anonymous, but, um, I've got a family now that I'm working with and the child has severe anxiety. We think the child has ASD. So that's autistic spectrum disorder. She's waiting for a neurodevelopmental diagnosis from the paediatrician. I've referred to child and adult mental health services. I'm going to be doing work with mum on what anxiety is because I can see from my own skills and experience that mum has a lot of anxiety and she's probably transferring a lot of it to her child. So I'm going to be supporting mum to understand what anxiety is and how she can then sort of... um, settle herself enough to be an anchor for her child 
So I'm going to do that work with her. I'm doing a bit of work with the child. And then alongside all those things, this child's not sleeping well. So I'm going to be making referrals to the sleep service. I'm going to be making referrals to the school nurse to do with her diet. Because if she has got ASD, you know, anything to do with textures and those kinds of things, smells of food, they'll all affect her eating. So this is to get a flavour of the fact that I'm not doing one thing. I'm doing several things. It's almost like juggling some balls. It's about prioritising what that family's needs are, what I need to work on first, and then what I will go on to. So it's almost yeah. like a longer-running programme of things. Yeah. Um, that will next to the wife. Setting up that team around the family as well and that getting all of those different kind of um, support services in play. Yeah. It sounds like you'll probably have to have quite a lot of what might be quite difficult conversations with families. Yeah. They, right. how, <laughs> I think, you know, a job like that, you know, where you may be kind of talking about parenting styles or... Uh, you know, where some behaviour might have originated from. Some of that can make, you know, I'm I'm a parent, you know, we can get quite quite defensive sometimes yeah. about, you know, what might be seen to be criticism around, you know, our beautiful, wonderful children. But, you know, how how do you deal with that as a kind of professional? How might you kind of approach some of those quite difficult conversations with families? Have you got any top tips around that? Yeah, so for sure. And I think when you become a family worker, one of the first things you need to do is like training in motivational interviewing um, and also empathy. Um, so when I'm, I am working with families who I might see that they have some negative cycles going on or they've learned sort of poor parenting skills, they've just learned to deal with things in different ways. And I use like skills of motivational interviewing, like I try and um, work with them so that they look at what they're doing and how that might impact the child. So I might say, oh, so, um, you know, by doing that, by, by sort of um, shouting at him and um, telling him what he's got to do every day, um, how's that impacting him? Um, what does he do? So, so do you think, um, you know, you might think about rephrasing it in a different way? What, what way could you rephrase it? You know, so I'm almost looking to them sometimes for the solutions, for their own solutions. So it's about guiding them through the way that you talk to them um, rather than saying, oh, you're doing that all wrong. You know, that's never going to work. So it's about guiding them through conversation. A bit like we're having a two-way conversation now. It becomes a two-way conversation and we'll do a lot of things visually, like, you know, through um, sort of like um, mind maps, that type of thing. We'll work out, you know, if we did this, what the effect might be. And we just give them a few things to work on at a time. So it's not like a mountain to climb. Um, and I, I often talk to parents like, you know, if we don't make changes, if, we, if you're not able to, to do this right now, how will things look in a month? What do you think things could be like in a year? So we try to get them to look forward to when we're doing those types of things. Um, and it can be quite tricky. You mentioned the team around the family. Part of being a family worker or targeted support worker is that you you are then the lead professional. So 
you will enlist all these services from these other professionals and you will bring them all together for a team around the family meeting, which is usually about sort of eight to 10 weeks, every eight to 10 weeks. So whilst, you know, you're saying how might I deal with the family, I've also got to try and guide those professionals also to get the best out of that family. And sometimes those meetings can be really tricky because someone at school might say something around the table that might be, you know, like a trigger for a parent um, or professionals might not necessarily agree. So it, it's so just not just... Right. Those um, team around um, the child meetings, the parents are present in those meetings. Yes, they are. And sometimes the children are too, or young people. Not necessarily if they're children, but young people definitely, or because we need to get their consent. Um, so that can be really tricky, managing those, <laughs> for sure. Um, but I think you've got to be a people person. You've got to be a people person. I'm very aware of your language, I, I assume, and just, you know, really thinking about, yeah, as you say, how you relate to people, how, how you phrase things, um, and making sure, as you say, that, that it is that kind of two-way conversation that you never feel like, you know, you're telling someone how to. Never. No. And, yeah, that's obviously going to make people defensive and it needs to be something that works for that family and that's something that's mutually agreed on. And you're trying to empower them because you've got to think that as a family worker, when your piece, is, piece of work is done and you step away, they've got to be able to manage on their own. So it's no good us sort of going in there and doing everything for them without making them or supporting them to become more resilient and resourceful on their own. So you can only do that by empowering them. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really nice message, isn't it? Yeah. So how long have you been doing this role, Louise? Okay, so this current role, I work for a local um, local authority for a county council, and I've been doing this role for two years. But before I was doing this role for local authority, I did for a period of time work um, for a private company um, where I was also a family worker, but that was in a residential unit, which was slightly different. So it was a residential unit where parents had been sent to the unit by the the family courts. Um, so these families had, had probably, you know, had sort of um, Section 17's... Um, section 20s you know the, the 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 judge had said to this family in order to keep your child or children you you know as part of being able to prove that you can parent you need to undergo a parenting assessment and so they'd be sent to the residential unit for i think it was 12 or 15 weeks um when mum and dad or just mum or in some cases we just had dad would go and live in the unit with a child and they'd be under surveillance for like 24-7. So they have cameras in their room and all around the house. And so I was a family worker in this residential unit where I would obviously do, you know, like eight, 10-hour shifts um, around, around the clock. Um, and so my job would be to work with that parent as a family support worker. Um 
working on life skills, parenting skills, and observing their behaviours to be able to ensure that the parenting assessment, it's called a pounds, a parenting assessment manual, the pounds assessment to ensure that that, that assessment was rigorous and we could be absolutely certain those children would be safeguarded and if they weren't being fully safeguarded what the parents needed to change about their own behavior um, and about the parenting so as you can see from this you know what I've already said I've been a family worker two places and already they're quite different roles and yeah yeah. and that was a really difficult job Um, I didn't stay there for long because it was a stepping stone for me because I wanted to be a family support worker out in the community. And I took that job, in all honesty, uh, because my mum had died and I was re-evaluating and I just wanted a few hours a week doing something like really purposeful. Um, so yeah, so I got to that job. Um, I've kind of forgot what the question was now, what the first part of it was. I feel like I've... <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know, Reed. <laughs> Yeah, I also what I think I actually what did you do before? So you've been the targeted family support worker for two years. Two years, and then you were before that at this quite kind of specialist private provision. Yeah, supporting families who have been through the court system. Yeah, so were you there for a year? Yeah, so I was for there for for about a year. And then before that, um, I worked in further education. So when I was at uni doing my childhood and youth degree at the Uni of Beds, um, I already worked in an alternative provision for young people who'd been excluded from school. Um, and I so within that alternative provision, because it was a, a charitable sector, um, and it was a charity that provided vocational education and training for young people excluded from school. Um, it had different vocational areas. And because my background from being a young person was always in childcare, I then went to work in this alternative provision. I worked in the, in the nursery there. Um, I was deputy manager there. And I was studying for my degree um, because working there, I didn't need a, a degree. Um, I just needed to have my level three, which yeah. I ha- obviously had. And then I worked towards my degree because I wanted to do better. I wanted to move on from being working in nursery work. And I wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to do at that time. I just knew I wanted to work with people like in more of a social care sort of sector, um, addressing sort of like social problems. And working with the young people defined neat or excluded from school was a good place to start. And that gave me a good foundation for doing my degree because I was picking up lots of experience. So I did that. And once I graduated, obviously, I, I stayed with that job because once you graduated, you feel like going, ah, you know, and like taking a deep breath, deep breath in, a good breath out because you've got through your three years. And so I stayed there for a while. Um, and until um, then, I went to work for, for a borough council, another borough council, not the one I'm in at the moment. Um, and I did some um, work um, in the community with um, like nursery nurses and schools. I was a vocational assessor. 
um, and I worked with um, people with English as an additional language and I helped them get into work. Um, then, then that's when my mum became ill and I decided to take the, the private job in the, um, you know, the parenting assessment unit that I worked in. And whilst I was looking for, you know, other more permanent roles, and this is where I found this current role that I'm in. Yeah. So, yeah. So then yeah, my experiences are quite varied, really, I'd say. Yeah. It, that's what you need for, to be a family worker. It's a varied experiences. Yeah, even though there's lots of different jobs there, you can definitely see how you can draw upon your work in a nursery, uh, drawing on your work with young people, not in education, employment or training, working out in the community, English as a language. I'm sure all of those experiences come together in your role. So if anyone was interested in being a a targeted family support worker, what kind of kind of qualifications or experience would you say that they would need? Okay. So to generally we're in this in the county council that I work for, they ask that you have at least to start with a relevant level three. So that's a diploma or something like that, or HND or something. Um and when they talk about relevant, it could be that you had a diploma in childcare and education or um, youth work, maybe, or a diploma in social care. So they want you to at least have that. But in their desirable category, they have desirable that you've got a degree. I know, I know most of my colleagues, so certainly all my colleagues in my current team are all degree qualified. There was the exception of one person who managed to get the job with a diploma, but that was because she'd worked in a school as a TA, um, working with young people. So she, I think her diploma was um, teaching and learning in schools, the level three diploma. But as part of taking this role as a family worker, um, she agreed to undertake what you might call like a foundation degree level. So she's she did her, she went on to do a level four um, in family work and then and she's on level five now. So I think there's the expectation when you're a family worker because you are seen to be a bit like a general practitioner of social mm-hmm. care, um, you are you are expected to be working towards sort of be working up to level six really at least um some of my colleagues are going on to do like masters and things and i had certainly considered it myself um well it would be lovely to have you back louise (laughs) (laughs) yeah no i i have talked about it a lot with my manager um so i think yes you, you can get into the role with a level three if you get, you know, if students get their degree, then they would certainly be accepted if it's a relevant degree, something along the lines of education or, you know, childhood and youth or um, I don't know what, what courses, you know, what your current sort of childhood and youth equivalent is now. At- yeah, you might be studying like a BA honours in education or education. Yeah. Studies. Yeah. Studying. There's lots of degrees um, around like working with children and young people. Yeah. Um. Um, kind of young people and social care, yeah, something around around those kind of like yeah, it's 
um, for that kind of relevant degree. Um, there's lots of different degrees out there now where yeah. you're but all of those are sort of anything really are based around sort of like social systems, social justice, any of those things are so, so useful for being a family worker. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and I mean, once you become a family worker, you know, it doesn't stop there. There's, there's, there's a lot you can go on to, to be fair. So do you mean in terms of career progression? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so kind of options are available. Yeah, so so at the moment, like, um, so I've been in my role two years, and in that time, you get to practice like supervision and things with other people. So obviously, I have my supervisions with my manager, but then like I've also mentored other new family workers, so I'll be like their mentor and I'll get them settled in. And then at the moment, I'm seconded to um, I'm an on-site supervisor. So I get paid extra money for that as well now. Um, so I'm an on-site supervisor for new social workers. So I get um, sort of like student social workers who would be like doing the equivalent to their masters. Um, I've got a student at the moment and she's in her first year placement. So, so then I supervise her and do her supervision. So it's like, it's almost like you get to practice being a manager when you're already a family worker and then they pay you a bit more. Yeah, and then I so I could then go on from this if I wanted to. To I could either do my masters and stay in the job that I'm in, or I could become a targeted support, either assistant manager or a targeted support manager. So then I would like work out of a family. Well, I do work out of a family centre, sort of, but I would be managing the people in the family centre. So I could go on to do that, or I could go on and do become a social worker if I wanted to do that, but. That's not my bag. I don't want to do that because I I personally feel like um, social workers these days have such massive, massive high caseloads and they don't get to see, they don't necessarily get to see when that family um, is functioning really well. Whereas as a family worker, I get to do the pieces of work with them and I get to be able to say goodbye to them in a nice way I get to see them really succeeding and the children doing really well or if they're not you know and I step them up to social care then obviously I then I know I'm handing them on to something which is going to increase you know support their needs their increased needs um but yeah so some people doing this job might you know if your students take on a family worker role to start with they might then want to become a social worker and that might be the thing that they really want to do almost like firefighting yeah but I I personally love being at this level um, and I'm happy to support others as well. Um, then some people in my team have gone on to do, oh, I don't know how to describe this so people listening will know what I'm talking about. They go on to be like, they almost go on to be like support professionals for other professionals. So a lot of schools have difficulty with like managing and maintaining the databases and um, working with families on any help assessments. So this this other colleague has gone on, I've got a couple of them, have gone on to be like an early help support officer. That's what they're called. But in a point. Yeah, they, exter- they support external partners, if you like, to, yeah. be, to be part of the wider early help team. So you can go on to do that. Um, yeah, I think, or, or you can go on to do more the business side of things. Not so many people do that, but you can go on to do that. So, 
yeah it sounds like really yeah really varied and I suppose as with any job once you've been doing it you know a few years you get a feel for which parts of it you really enjoy or where your passions lie yeah. bits that maybe you don't like so much yeah. and the different progression routes you can then try and find that kind of suit your skill set as well and, yeah. and where your kind of passions lie exactly. so Thinking about money, yes, someone was um, interested in becoming a targeted family support worker. What would you say uh, would be like a typical starting salary for a job like that? Yeah. So starting salaries, I know certainly for my area, they start off of around about 25,000 odd. I can't remember what the odd figure is. Yeah. And you have um, Joint National Council spinal column pay points. So I don't know if anyone's heard of JNC, but you can look them up. And then you, your your points, as long as you, you know, meet all your things in terms of your annual, you know, your your monthly and then your annual supervision, um, then you go up in pay points. So you go up by a few points. So then you might, you know, go from twenty five thousand dollars up to say into the twenty six thousand bracket and so on and so forth. So you can get up to about thirty thousand per annum in your pay points um if you became like a so like a senior family worker then could become um uh, uh, you'd, you'd probably need to be doing the job for say three three and a bit years to become a senior family worker and you can get up to about thirty two thousand. um as I said, on the way up, you can get secondment opportunities to be, be paid like an extra thousand per annum, like I am at the moment, for being like on site supervising things. Targeted support assistant managers is sort of like around the 35,000. And then, like, um, the targeted support manager, you're looking, looking at 40K plus, which isn't dissimilar actually to social workers. I mean, social workers, I think. They start off around like twenty eight to thirty thousand pound mark, um, and can go up to like forty up to forty six thousand. So it's not dissimilar. You're not getting paid quite as much as a social worker, um, but then you're not actually juggling the level of risk. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's it's really nice to kind of see that kind of pay progression. So you've got your starting salary, which would increase year on year. As you say, as long as you're kind of meeting your objectives, yeah, yeah. that you've got those kind of promotion opportunities to yeah. increase further, if that's what you know, yeah, motivates you in terms of changing your role. And you know, we talked before, didn't we, about your salaries might differ if you're working for one council in comparison to another council, yeah, or there are kind of family support uh, worker roles in kind of. Uh, private or charitable organisations as well. So absolutely, really worth looking around. Yeah, and how the salaries differ if you are able to commute for work. Yeah, there are quite big differences in salaries. Yeah, well, I commute really um, for work even now. So I don't work for my local authority where I live, and there's there's a couple of good reasons for that. So I don't work in in the area that I live because I don't want to bump into any of the families that I'm supporting in the supermarket. Yeah. And I, I think that that could be a bit tricky for them to know that you're quite local and it works both ways. I wouldn't want my families thinking that I'm keeping an eye on them when they're out and about. <laughs> Likewise, I wouldn't want them 
you know, sort of knowing too much about me as a person because I try and keep that like professional boundary. So that's the first thing. Um, but then I also work out of county because um, the pay is better in this other county to where I I I live. Um, so I commute. My commute is roughly could be up to an hour a day. So I do spend like. I work three days a week. I don't work full time for those for the listeners. Um, that's just my choice. You know, I was a mature student. I'm in my 50s now. I don't want to work full time and I don't need to. And because this job is one where there can be pressure at times and you are working with lots of risks and things that can affect you emotionally too, um, three days is great because I get a good work-life balance. So when I'm working on my three days, I can be working at home at least two of those days if I want to. I always make sure, and it's expected, that I'm in the office one day a week. So that commute can be about 40 to 50 minutes to my local office. But I've got a choice of offices. Um, so I, I go, my office, what I'm based at, is, a, is like a, a family centre that's in, in a school. It's based in a school. But I can go to offices like that are like an hour away, an hour and 10 minutes away, which are up the north of our county. Um, and of course, the families that I visit can be like an hour's drive. Um, so, yeah, and the schools as well that I visit can be up to an hour's drive. But it's it's completely doable because I'm, you know, I'm in charge of my own calendar. Obviously, if I'm visiting families in one particular area that are an hour away, I'm going to arrange to visit all my families in that area on that day because that's that's you know sensible way to manage things. Um, so it sounds quite quite good in the sense of you're as you say you're kind of responsible now about organising your own calendar and got that flexibility of being able to work from home, yeah, and then out in the office, but also kind of out in the community visiting. Yeah, oh, so very desk in front of a computer all day every day I mean you can't get you, you don't get to know a family that way for sure you know yeah. no. so, yeah. in covid times it was really really hard you know when we had to meet our families on teams because we weren't allowed to visit them or we, ha- we we were only allowed to go to their front door um so yeah you do need to get out there and be prepared to travel for sure um so yeah so if if you're gonna take on the job you need to like be happy about like your geography and everything and traveling around. I think that's a key thing. <laughs> Going into schools and meeting with a range of practitioners as well. And yeah, and meeting with a range of families. Leads us nicely then on to um, our question around, if you were to give three pieces, three pieces of advice yeah. to someone interested in the role, what would it be? Okay. So the first one, Volunteer, volunteer, volunteer. <laughs> so I can honestly say, before I even did my degree, I was always kind of person that just volunteered to do things, uh, just because I'm quite a people person. So, um, like I volunteered, you know, when I was younger, um, and I had my children, I volunteered to be part of the National Childbirth Trust. So I was a volunteer postnatal supporter, and then when my children were in school, I volunteered in their school, um. But even if, so for, for people now who are studying their degrees now and they think, oh, I haven't done any volunteering, it's quite, you know, I would say to them, just even find some charities that need support. Charity, charities always need support and volunteers. 
you know, it might be that you go and volunteer with children's groups. It might be that you volunteer to become a befriender to a young person who's a looked after child in care. Um, you know, there's so many opportunities out there. You could work with homeless people. So I would say volunteer because you need a real breadth of experience and that's what's going to stand out in your interview to become a targeted support family worker. That's the first piece of advice. The second one is if you want to work for a local authority, specifically for a local authority, look up what their systems of work are. So in my local authority, I look up and I read all about their Think Family approach, which is about having the child at the heart of everything you do. So I read up all about their, um, um, you know, like their approaches um, and their theories, theories of thinking and what theories they were based around. So theoretical development in uni is an important one for this role. Um, you know, looking at like systemic practices, those types of things. Um, so reading up what your local authority does and being invested. And when I talk about invested, I mean really knowing their systems and trying to understand. And if you don't understand, have a list of questions that you're going to ask in the interview about their systems. Um, because that's what you're going to be working with. So you're going to kind of need to know. Um, so that's the second piece of advice. Yeah, and actually in that second piece of advice on reading up, read up on evidence-based parenting programs because you're going to be doing a lot of parenting programs, anything that's evidence-based. So, um, you know, you can find out about things about that on LinkedIn, really. You know, the evidence-based parenting programs are things like Triple P, Incredible Years, Stepping Stones, any of those. Try and read up and find out about them because they're going to be a crucial part of your role. And then the third piece of advice is... I would actually be prepared to perhaps do a case study about something that you as a student have done. Like, so think about a person you've supported or a family that you've supported or a project that you've led. It could even be a project in uni that you've led. And think about what interventions you might have made if you led that project or worked with that person or worked with that family. And what Think about the impact it had upon those people. So what did you leave them with that made them either more resilient or um, that led them to excel or that made that project succeed? And do a case study because if you can take that to an interview, that shows you can already do what you're going to need to do as a family worker because you effectively you have to lead projects. You have to lead you know, interventions that are going to work for the good of the child and the family. So, yeah, three really great pieces of advice there. And I think there's lots to kind of think about and to look up there. Um, and especially around, as you say, like the parenting approaches and making sure that, you know, it's not based on our own kind of personal opinions or experiences of what we think good parenting looks like. And that, as you say, it's a job that is very evidence-based. Yeah. Um, and that it's well founded in kind of the research and the theory around child development yeah. and, and behaviour. Um, is there anything else that you would like to add, Louise? Um, I don't think so, no. Um, I suppose the, the only thing I'd say for students to be aware of if they're applying for this role 
is they just they did would need to understand because it, it sounds it, it sounds it really is a lovely role that you do need to understand that you are working with extreme challenges and you have to have your safeguarding hat on every moment of the day and you have to be prepared to refer a family or make calls in urgent circumstances where children are not safeguarded and that they need immediate protection all of the time. Um, so I think you have to understand that whilst you're doing all the nice stuff, there are sometimes some really tricky moments, but actually it's okay once you've done them and your colleagues, you know, I've found your colleagues just hold your hands when you're at that moment, you know, you're a team. Um, you get through it and um, the next time you have to do it, it's not quite so bad. <laughs> yeah. And how do you deal with that? I suppose you mentioned earlier about it being, you know, quite emotionally demanding jobs sometimes and that you yeah. do, you know, work with very complex situations. So do you have any advice to people about, you know, how do you maybe draw that line between kind of work and then, you know, you're not at work anymore, but you might have those thoughts or, yeah. <laughs> or what you now need to do, or are they okay buzzing around in your head when you're back home? Yeah. How do you how do you deal with that? Okay, so a few different ways, really. So, obviously, um, you have your supervisions with your manager. So, you have those and you know they're coming up. And I have caseload supervisions, but I also have welfare supervisions. So I always know I'm always going to get to talk to my manager about how I'm feeling. And she literally will just say, what kind of a week are you had? How are you feeling? So you know you can offload then. But also in the moment, we have mental health first aiders. I'm a mental health first aider, so I'm there for my colleagues. And I've got other mental health first aiders I can go to at work. So um, I, I can call on any of them if I'm stressed out. Um, and when you work for local authorities, like you're looked after in terms of um, you like get well-being platforms and things or people to contact. Um, and you can go to forums, you can join forums. Um, I, I, I have to be careful because I've got a hidden disability myself. And so I've got spinal stenosis. So I, if, if I get stressed at work, it affects my spine and my body. So I... Um, I've joined like the ideal network, it's called the ideal network at work. It's for people who are working with hidden disabilities so I can go and talk to them. Um, I do a lot of mindfulness. So that's something I do for myself. I like to get outdoors. I make sure I take a break. Um, I make sure I have a break every every lunchtime. And when I work from home, I'm, I am lucky enough that I've got like a, um, like a garden room, if you like, where I work. So I just make sure that my computer and my laptop are away from my living areas. <laughs> so that's another thing. And then I make sure I've got, um, I know it sounds old fashioned. We've all got our computers, but I actually have a handwritten to-do book. So do I, actually. Yeah. yeah. Because, I'll tell you why, because it's a tangible thing. Mm -hmm. I can write in that book on a Friday when I finish work, I can write in that book all my list of jobs that I've got to do that I haven't finished off. It's in that tangible book that I can pick up, I can write in it, I can put it down and I can park it until the following Wednesday. Yeah. Um, I, I don't have to worry about those things because they're out of my head and they're down on that piece of paper. I haven't got to log onto my computer, I can see them. They're on that bit of paper. 
I know where they are. It's how unconscious brain Yeah. Helps clear my mind, doesn't right. watch it. Lots of things buzzing about in my head that I need to do, and I'm worried about forgetting them. Yeah. Like, just having them vi- visually down on the Yes. I quite reassuring. Yeah. So, the, the power of a paper notebook. Still. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, thank you very much, Louise. I think that's a really useful overview of your role. And, you know, I'm sure it starts lots of ideas. Right. I hope I've encouraged some more students to come and be family workers now. <laughs> thank you very much, Louise. Thank you, Kate. Bye.